we were a dinner table where we would always eat dinner every night as a family, and the entertainment was stories. This time there was no sound, but the trap was heavy. And I looked down, and the trap was filled, but it was filled with this kind of red gelatin mass. And the aesthetic that united the potluck was very revealing. Every single man, woman, and child was totally and utterly nude. This is The Food Podcast, a Village Soundcast network production where personal stories are shared through the lens of food. I guess I recognized then that my dad was always this central, somewhat hapless adventurer in his stories. And and I guess that, that rubbed off on me. I'm Lindsay Cameron Wilson. Jellyfish burgers sound kind of gross. But last summer I ate them on the deck of our cottage in the late afternoon sun with kids and family and friends all around. A game of cornhole was happening on the grass and down the bank through the wildflowers popping up between the rocks was the sandy beach where the tide was going out and a sandbar was just appearing. Prince Edward Island is visible on days like these, just on the other side of the Northumberland Strait. My father grew up coming to this beach. His parents bought the cottage when he was just a little boy. It's a community now of old friends, cousins, and friends that feel like cousins, all bound together by salty air, memories, and magical landmarks that make this place unique. Like Grandfather Mosewallow, a giant boulder given that name by someone's grandfather, just sitting there on the beach halfway to Big Point. Or Coca-Cola Brook, the stream of fresh water that flows from the land through the sand and into the ocean. The water is exactly the color of Coca-Cola. Or the Arthropleura fossil, embedded into the dark stone, rumored to be there for millions of years. And beach glass, even the little prize blue pieces, and cow's teeth washed up with the seaweed. There was a time I didn't love it there. When I was 15, I got a job in the city just to avoid it. There was no TV. We had to sit and read. Who knew if the neighbors would be there to hang out with? Teenage torture. But despite my irritating teenage self, my dad never lost that enthusiasm for beach missions. And I have to say, it was infectious. It's still infectious. Who else could get a bunch of kids to hunt for jellyfish Dry them on a rock with a sprinkling of salt. Wait 24 hours only to chop them up, mix them with potatoes, and eat them during cocktail hour. His game, there is always a game, was to have us guess which burgers were made with jellyfish. He had mixed jellyfish into just half the mixture. The burgers tasted like toasted sesame seeds, ginger, garlic, and Asian latka of sorts. No one knew the difference between the two. Now jellyfish burgers are part of the fabric of the place, along with cow's teeth and beach glass, and a brook made of Coca-Cola. Today on The Food Podcast, in honour of Canada's 150th birthday, I chat with Grant Lawrence, Canadian music journalist, musician, writer and storyteller. Lawrence's heart lies in Desolation Sound, an inlet at the end of Highway 1 on British Columbia's west coast. 
He tells me about this place, the taste, the smells, the people, the stories, and his father who made these memories happen. It's a coast-to-coast, flavorful look at the places we call home, thanks to fathers. We're calling it Fathers of Confederation. Grant Lawrence's first memoir was published in 2010. I discovered it in my father's bookshelf. It was the title that caught my eye. Adventures in Solitude, What Not to Wear to a Nude Potluck, and Other Stories from Desolation Sound. But before we get into that salacious potluck, I had to find out where Desolation Sound was in the first place. Desolation Sound is a boat access only section of the British Columbia coastline. 30 kilometers north of the end of Highway 101. British navigation legend Captain Vancouver originally surveyed the place in the summer of 1792 with complete disdain. Grant says it hasn't changed much since then. I can picture it. A rocky, jagged coastline dotted with islands and inlets. There are lagoons, towering cliffs, and granite outcrops. The snow-capped coastal BC mountains are off in the distance. Grant opens the book with these words. For all the adventures, fishing tales, mishaps, characters, and serenity that I have encountered in Desolation Sound over the past 30 years, I have my father to thank. Grant says his father is a storyteller, a larger-than-life hero, a cross between Robert Redford, Harrison Ford, and Steve McQueen. Picture it. Short cropped hair, mirrored sunglasses, kind of white t-shirt and jeans, you know, maybe a checkered jacket occasionally in colder days. My dad's more David Letterman than Steve McQueen, but these dads, they share the same love of adventure and both know how to turn an adventure into a story. My parents, before kids came along, lived on the Queen Charlotte Islands, now called Haida Gwaii, off the coast of British Columbia. I'm sure this connection is how the book landed on the shelf in the first place. Anyway, Grant's hunky dad was also a recreational real estate developer. He had a vision to build a community on 180 acres of British Columbia's coast, on the land he bought for a song when Grant was just a kid. The community started with their cabin, built in an inlet on a granite outcrop, in the early 80s, with no modern conveniences of any kind. Picture it, Grant, his dad in mirrored sunglasses, his mom wearing... A lot of pink, pink pedal pushers and argyle socks, pink shoes, pink sweater, tied loosely around her shoulders. And his little sister, who Grant said was as nerdy as he was. There they were. Freshly transplanted from the urban life of West Vancouver, ready to face the elements. This is the view. You look out and you see beautiful blue ocean water, uh, which is in an inlet. So you're looking across at uh, green forested mountains and hills. There's little islands that dot the inlet that we look out across to that are heavily forested. There's often an array of boats that occasionally go by, sailboats, sometimes big yachts, often little aluminum work boats like oyster skiffs. It gets busier in the summer, but there are days where you won't see anyone. Kayaks will often paddle by. And if we're really lucky, 
we'll sit out on our deck having beer or whatever else, and we'll see orcas swim by. So that's the view uh, from our deck. It's really, really glorious, and it's definitely my favorite view in the whole world. But he didn't always see it that way. Grant went through those teenage years, like me, where this place was teenage torture. Then there were the years in his rock band, The Smugglers. He avoided Desolation Sound for over a decade. And his parents, they struggled a bit too at first. As the community developed, interesting neighbors moved in. Hippies and draft dodgers included. That was an element that my dad really frowned upon. He did not like the hippie movement at all. He thought the Beatles were terrible. He blamed John Lennon for the entire hippie movement, which he considered dirty and lazy. And as it turns out, one of the first community events in Desolation Sound was a potluck hosted by a hippie. Now, a potluck, by definition, is a meal or a party to which each of the guests contributes a dish. This dish usually comes from a pot, hence potluck. Well, as Grant explains, the key word to the potluck invitation was, in fact, pot. Waldo's potluck was a five-minute boat ride away from our cabin in the next bay. And as our little motorboat rounded the rocky finger that separated our bays, we heard the potluck before we saw it. The combined caterwaul of a party in full swing danced across the open water like radio waves. And as we drew closer, my innocent young eyes widened upon a scene of total hedonism. And now I should say that uh, I was about nine years old at this time, and my uh, little sister was about seven, and we were both total nerds. Just to put it in perspective, this was a very, very hot August day, and I'm pretty sure I was wearing an E.T. turtleneck. Intertwined brown bodies lay outstretched all over the sun-drenched shoreline, smoking, drinking, laughing, singing, making out, and making love. Seemingly wild, long-haired children ran amongst the adults, leaping off the rocks into the green ocean water. And the aesthetic that united the potluck was very revealing. Every single man, woman, and child was totally and utterly nude. Now, this outrageous scene was more than enough for my dad to start vigorously turning our boat around. But my mom reached out and grabbed his arm and wouldn't let him, reasoning that A, she was bringing banana bread, B, we were going to have to meet the rest of our Desolation Sound neighbors eventually, and C, how would it look if the big bad developer man and his West Vancouver family suddenly swung their boat around in full view of the entire neighborhood and left without even saying hello. Uh, We tied our little skiff to a makeshift barge of boats, a barely floating pell-mell parking lot of rafts and canoes and kayaks that were seemingly kind of sinking before our eyes. And we had to very gingerly climb through several of them before we could make our way up to shore. We were greeted by a beaming Waldo and his long white beard, which flowed down over his bulging brown belly, which almost covered his dangling penis. 
He gripped a half-full bottle of labelless red wine in one hand, and he waved a giant doobie around in the other, which he transferred to his lips when he extended his leathery brown hand in welcome. And my sister and I just stared on in complete shock. Everyone at the potluck warmly welcomed us with extremely uncomfortable hugs, introducing us all around, and pungent pot clouds filled the air like a skunky London fog, and elaborate bongs gurgled and hissed, threatening to stain my mom's pink pedal pushers at any moment. And my mom later said that uh, she had never maintained such steadfast eye contact in her life and took extra caution when reaching out to shake hands with the tall guys. And when Waldo sat down on a stump and spread his legs like Santa in a sauna, my mom very strategically placed the pan of banana bread directly on his lap. As a kid, Grant spent many summer days with their hermit neighbor, Russell. Russell lived in a wooden shack with no electricity. Unlike Grant's father, who started each day with 300 push-ups and sit-ups, Russell swore, drank a lot, and started his mornings with a doobie. But they all liked and respected Russell. He lived off the land. He was a doer. And it was Russell who taught Grant to fish. But Grant's palate was limited as a kid. When it comes to food, I was pretty much the most plain of plain eaters that you can imagine. Uh, I'll give you an example. The sandwich that my mom made me every single day was four slices of medium cheddar cheese between two slices of homestead whole wheat bread. No mayonnaise, plain. It's hard to imagine Grant in his E.T. turtleneck and glasses catching a fish, let alone eating it. But Russell taught him things and expanded his horizons. I've been explaining this to my son Josh that I made my own first fishing rod out of Arbutus wood. I caught quite a healthy sized codfish with it, uh, with Russell. I remember the experience extremely vividly. I just stuck a reel, a fishing line, onto a sawed-off Arbutus stem that came out of this branch that I cut off for the rod. I had to do it by hand, like half turns, uh, reeling this fish up. And could have very easily got off the hook, but I think I kept the fishing rod stick taunt enough that I'll never forget this bug-eyed monster just emerging from the depths. And we still have a picture of it to this day. In fact, I think it might be in the book. We filleted and we barbecued it up. I'm sure we totally overcooked it. We ate that first codfish and many, many after that. The freshest food in the world, as I always say. Grant says he learned the art of storytelling from his father. Grant does work as a journalist with the CBC, a place that will hone your storytelling skills. But really, the early skills began at home. We were at dinner table where we would always eat dinner every night as a family, and the entertainment was stories. And so I would pester my dad for stories of his youth. 
cycling the monkey trails along the banks of the Red River in Winnipeg, and later his many, many different odd jobs, driving a fruit truck in Winnipeg and crashing that fruit truck in the intersection of Portage and Maine, and working on the train that crossed Canada as a waiter and never being allowed to write anything down. Just kind of capturing my imagination with that sort of waiter shorthand, like blood on a raft, the crazy vernacular that they use, or at least used to use in that world. And so I would pester him constantly for stories. And then occasionally my sister and I would turn to my mom and say, well, now you tell us a story about you growing up. And my mom would say, nothing ever happened to me. I can't remember anything. We had this kind of yin-yang of storytelling. I guess I recognized then that my dad was always this central, somewhat hapless adventurer in his stories. And, and I guess that, that rubbed off on me. So Grant learned the fine art of capturing attention with a good tale. He's now telling his kids' stories, but now he is the adventurer. My dad also can weave a great tale, as you might remember from episode 17. But he usually told stories on long family drives in the car. And now I tell stories to my kids, mostly before bed. They prefer the Lindsay getting in trouble stories. There are lots of those. But the key to a good story we've learned from our fathers is for something to happen. And within that, something must be learned. Like how to not get in trouble. Or in Grant's case, how to handle the monsters that live in the deep, dark waters of Desolation Sound. So my friends, they put on this seafood feast up at Desolation Sound where the whole point is everything on the table was caught or foraged from the surrounding ocean or land. There would be lingcod on the table. There would be clams that we dug up from the beach. There would be oysters on the half shell with a little bit of lime, a little bit of Tabasco, and maybe a little bit of cheese added on top. We'd sometimes clip some sea asparagus from the beach as well. Sometimes we'd even have berries, huckleberries, uh, blackberries, I remember one year. And then prawns are kind of that really sought-after delicacy. Juicy spot prawns about the size of your curled middle finger. To catch prawns in Desolation Sound, what you have to do is you take your prawn trap, which is you know similar to a lobster trap, about the size of a crate of bananas covered in, uh, in a mesh, you know, a, a rope mesh. You have to drop a prawn trap to a really dramatic depth of ocean. And luckily, Desolation Sound ocean depths are very dramatic. Uh, so you have to get down about 300 feet. If you can picture a 30-story skyscraper, that would be that depth, but straight down into darkened ocean mystery. Grant had lowered his trap the day before. And 24 hours later, he was back, leaving plenty of time for those juicy spot prawns to make their way into the trap. He says it was a beautiful summer's night. The water was like glass. He pulled up the trap, all 300 feet of line, hauling and hoping there was no jellyfish stingers twisted against the rope. They'll sting your hands and legs. But this night, all was clear. The trap came into sight around the 20-foot mark. Usually at this point, if it's a good haul, 
you can see a beautiful, bright pink glowing from inside the trap. But this time, he saw dark red. You just never really know what's going to come up from the depths of the ocean. The ocean kind of releases the prawn trap like a watery hand trying to hold it back. And then you pull it out and there's this big... The trap is suddenly much lighter without the ocean holding it down. And so it flops into the boat. Usually, once the prawn trap is out, it's just alive with a sea monkey-like chaos. The prawns make a clicking sound when they're wiggling up against each other. This time, there was no sound. But the trap was heavy. And I looked down, and the trap was filled, but it was filled with this kind of red gelatin mass. I had no idea what it was. And I could see on the surface of this sort of red gelatin mass that it was kind of pimply and it was moving almost like a lava lamp inside. And then what I'll never forget is this sort of mass rolled over and this yellow eye looked up at me through the mesh. And then I could see a couple of tentacles and I realized that a great Pacific octopus had got into the prawn trap and then couldn't get back out. My brain shifted from thinking about the prawn dinner and the seafood feast to just like, what do I do now? The only thing that was holding the prawn trap closed was this little metal catch. And I flipped that open and the prawn trap just opened up like a jack-in-the-box and flapped flat on the surface of the boat. And this octopus just expanded in all directions. My wife likes it when I say, I swear to God, Lindsay, this thing must have had eight legs. It went from this small, compact space to this eight-legged creature, and its legs just start going in all directions all at once. I scrambled to the bow of the boat, and the octopus was near the engine. I was not thinking food anymore. I was thinking octopus out. The octopus was just grabbing at everything, grabbing at empty beer cans at the bottom of the boat. And I remember one tentacle went out in one direction and it was staring at me. And its tentacle was feeling around the bottom of the boat, almost like someone kind of feeling for their glasses on their bedside table. Without taking its eyes off of me, I will never forget when the octopus actually grabbed a wrench as if it was like brandishing it. Really the moment where I sprung into action was when the octopus actually managed to find my fishing knife and had the wherewithal to pick it up by the handle. Not the blade, but by the handle. It's arming itself and it has six legs to go. And so I grabbed an oar. And as I mentioned earlier, you know, I'm a lover, not a fighter when it comes to uh, this type of situation. So I took the oar and I fashioned the oar kind of more like a giant spatula than a cleaver. In one thrust, I slid the oar under the octopus. Okay, just a second. Let me tell you what this is like from the octopus's perspective. Way back when, my cousin Susanna and I found ourselves in Calistoga Springs, a small spa town in Northern California. The various spas advertised their prices on roadside signs. 
We were young and broke, so we drove down that main drag, past spa after spa after spa, until we found the cheapest package deal. Before I knew it, we were naked in what looked like a communist YMCA shower. A tiny, non-verbal woman hosed us down. Then I was escorted to a vat of bubbling mud where the same woman motioned for me to crawl, crab-like, onto what looked like a giant pizza paddle. Now remember I was naked. (laughs) There were people milling around this big tiled room. My cousin was a few vats over, staring at me worriedly. But I did what I was told. I crawled onto that giant paddle, and in one swift motion, the tiny woman launched me over the mud, pulled the paddle back, and let me sink slowly and evenly into the volcanic chocolate brown bubbles. If I had crawled in, toes first, I wouldn't have experienced the unique layers of increasing heat. The pizza launch was brilliant. Of course, there's more to that story, but let's just say that experience solidified my belief in using what you have. Pizza paddles are also hot mud launchers. Oars can be spatulas. Grant was on my wavelength. And the octopus dropped its weaponry and wrapped all eight legs around the oar, like my daughter hugs my leg. And then I just put the oar up into the air. And one of my memories of this story is the incredible difference of the color juxtaposition between the octopus's scarlet red body and the beautiful blue, blue, blue sky. And then I just thrust the octopus back into the ocean. The octopus very, very gracefully just let go and all eight legs kind of floated. And then with this perfect sort of synchronicity, all eight legs jet propelled this octopus on an angular trajectory back down into the ocean. And its last move, its last kind of um, FU to me, was letting out a big black cloud of ink in its wake. In between the desolation sound, naked potlucks, afternoons fishing with Russell the Hermit, and the prawn-catching adventures, there were years where Grant just didn't want to be there. As a teenager, I thought that the wilderness of Desolation Sound was the loneliest and most boring place in the world. I saw nothing. I saw trees and rocks and ocean and just boredom. I wanted to explore the world, and I, I wanted to do that by going to urban centers because that's where rock and roll happens. So he traveled with his band, The Smugglers, to major cities all across Canada, the United States. They went to Paris, London, across Australia, New Zealand, and to Tokyo. But to do that, you are often, you know, shoved in a small, stinky van with uh, four or five other guys. And in the first few years, there's really nothing more exciting. You're, you know, you're explorers. You're, you're finding out what's... Uh, over the next mountain range and what's across the next border and it's extremely exciting and for a while that was home you know that that was comforting but you know the smell of stale beer and urinal pucks and back then cigarette smoke and and after a while after many years those spaces do become very very confining so when the band wound down and i eventually went back to desolation sound 
I found the expanse of the blue sky against the green mountains was just so, it just felt so wide open to me. I do the same thing every time I arrive at our cottage. I get out of the car and inhale. I smell cut grass, salty air, the ocean, seaweed, a little bit of smoke from a bonfire. It's always smelled the same, but I can't remember noticing this as a kid. Does maturity wake in our senses? Is it time or experience? Or maybe it's gratitude for the fathers who brought us here and relief we didn't ditch them altogether way back when. Depending on the season, you can always usually smell the moss. It's the rainforest, so there's a lot of moss that covers the forest floor. Once you're a little bit into the forest, the moss is as thick as a mattress, a natural mattress for camping. Down by the shore, you have more of a lichen, which is a moss that is a hard moss that grows against the rock face. In the summertime, that moss can dry out and become quite crunchy. When you step in it, it lets out this kind of dust which to me is a plant-like smell that is summer to me. The chapters in this memoir are dedicated to songs. Music is the lens through which Grant sees the world. There are songs that capture these smells and these tastes, and there are songs that describe the love. Once his senses awakened, and once he realized the grass on the other side was actually a claustrophobic van filled with stinky guys and gas station snacks, He met Jill, also a musician, but from Ontario, a province in the middle of Canada filled with freshwater lakes, a place far from desolation. Jill wrote a song for Grant, which she sings with her brother on their latest album, the family album. She calls it One True Love. I I really love that song because, you know, Jill, sorry, pull it together. I cry, you know, that Little House in the Prairie reference is just, you know, I cry just like Michael Landon, pretty much at the drop of a cowboy hat. But Jill is my biggest supporter and, uh, and she lets me know that in the song. She also lets him know through food. Grant has moved on from the cheese slices on whole wheat. In Desolation Sound, Jill makes big, beautiful breakfasts. Omelets with avocados or blueberry pancakes. She barbecues the seafood fresh from the ocean. I don't think she's wearing pink pedal pushers, but apparently she has kayaked with a glass of Chardonnay. And now I drag Jill and the kids up to Desolation Sound, just like my parents dragged me. And just like I used to do on that windy Sunshine Coast Highway, uh, my kids on the last trip i am going to say between the two of them they combined threw up i'm going to say eight times and just like my dad i didn't stop the car because we missed the ferry
thanks to Grant Lawrence for writing all this down, for being an artist, for risking his life for a good story. You can find him at grantlawrence.ca. And you can find his wife, Jill Barber, at jillbarber.com. And I have some news. I've collaborated with The Taste Box, a monthly food box carefully curated by a perfect pair, Jenny Hallahan and Matt Walker. Each month, they send out a different box filled with three to five unique gourmet ingredients and recipe ideas designed to expand and ignite your culinary repertoire. I've designed the July Taste Box. It's all about wild flavors from the Maritimes, from dried seaweed to Hascap berry syrup. It's such a good one. You can order your Taste Box from thetastebox.co. And if you're in Canada or the U.S., shipping is free. You can find me on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at The Food Podcast. Or there's always my site, lindsaycameronwilson.ca, where you can sign up for my newsletter and catch up on all the latest food stories. As always, thanks to Jen Grant for our theme song. Thanks for listening. I'm Lindsay Cameron Wilson. This was a Village Soundcast Network original production.